0: Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast that will bring you the message and hope with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today you will listen to Pastor Dave Johnson. Pastor Dave has been in a series in the book of Mark, so make sure you listen all the way through. And now here is Pastor Dave. As we get into the message today, what I wanted to begin with today is asking you this question Have you ever been let in on something? That once you were let in on it, it made the entire ordeal of what you were about to go through, it made it easier and more palatable. It made it so that you could actually endure the difficulty that was ahead. Let me give you an example. When my girls were like one and a half and two and a half, I remember distinctly we went to the beach. Uh, when I lived in Southern California, it was like, I take Fridays and Saturdays off. that's my weekend. Um, so we go to the beach on like a Friday when they were young and weren't in school yet. And we'd go to the beach and I was playing with the girls in the water and Desiree was like reading in her book or something like that. And I, I just distinctly remember this because I am just getting tackled by my girls, sand everywhere. It was so much fun. We had a great time. And I run up and I was already feeling overwhelmed with the two. And she said, how do you feel about adoption? And I said like, hey, pump the brakes. We have a two-and-a-half and a one-and-a-half-year-old. One like, what, what are you? Are you crazy? Like, just pump the brakes here a little bit. You know, that was my reaction. And, and I didn't have a great reaction to it, to be honest with you, in the first place. And I should have had a better one, but I didn't. And then she was like, but what about, what about, I, I just, I really feel like we ought to adopt a special needs child. And I was like, I already just said pump the brakes to the child. Now you want to adopt a special, like, I, I'd be willing to do that, but could we wait a little bit? Like, you know, I actually don't even think I said I'd be willing to do that at the moment. I just was, she shocked me. I, I didn't have a great response because she, she kind of shocked me with that. She, she dumped this information on me. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but my wife had been praying about adoption and she knew that my heart wasn't in it just yet. And she was sitting on the beach that day and she had a distinct impression in her heart that God was leading us to adopt. And I, not me, I, God speaks to my wife so much more clear sometimes than me. But not me, but he gave it to her. And so she, she was wise and she didn't bring it up again for a while and we were on a walk a couple months later and she said, so do you think we're done having kids or we should have more? And then to which I said, well, I would, I would love at one point to adopt. I know you brought that up. I think we should adopt at one point. And so she said, okay, I, I think we could do that. We went home. She signed us up for LA County adoption. Like, I'm just talking with her, right? And the next day we were in LA County orientation. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? Why are we going so fast? And and I'm like, I remember telling her, this isn't a race. Why are we going so quickly? And what I didn't know is that the Lord had been speaking to her and prompting her that we were going to adopt a boy that had medical needs and that the the Lord had just laid this heavily on her heart. She's like, it's not like God said anything to me, but I just knew that this is what we were supposed to do. And I was resolute on it. So it was like, so... She got us into all these classes, and she never told me any of that part because she didn't want to scare me away. She already knew I was a bit skittish about the whole thing, so she didn't want to scare me away, so we got into classes, and we're just pumping through these classes because you got to take a trillion of them and all that, and we're taking these classes, and all of a sudden, we're taking this medically fragile class, and I'm like, why are we in all these classes all the time? This is, we, We could spread this out. We don't need to do it all this weekend, you know? And I just thought I'd be overwhelmed by three kids and all that stuff, but, but it turns out um, in the middle of all these classes, a phone number lands on my desk at the church. And a friend said, this is a pastor who's down the street from you. They have three kids of their own, and LA County Foster Care has just dumped three kids onto their lap. And there is an emergency placement, so they're not meant to stay in the home for long, but they've already overstayed the emergency placement." And you're not supposed to do this in foster care, but sometimes this happens in LA County because they're so overwhelmed. But they found out there was a pastor looking for an adoption, so we ended up talking to each other. And I called them and I was like, hi, I, I know this is crazy, but I'm calling you about a, a kid that you have? You know, like that, how weird is that phone call? And he goes, Yes, I do. And and are you an adopted? Yeah, we're through foster care, we're doing all that stuff. He goes, okay, let's talk. So we end up meeting up a couple of days later and i literally picked up jacob for the very first time right there and when i picked him up it was like my heart did this huge you know melted into a, just a giant pool of you know heart substance or whatever it would melt into i don't know and i picked him up and he had this crazy wild hair like he still has today and i just looked at him and i was like this is my son i just knew it i just knew it and And in that moment, it was like my heart was bonded to his heart. I didn't know what it was, but it was like God's providence and God leading me, Desiree and I, to do this. It was like, this is my son. I knew that. And then three years of L.A. County court hell pursued after that. And they threatened to take him, that there was some... They, they, they had all these different things. I mean, he eventually was placed in our home, but there was all these different people that popped up out of nowhere that were going to take him, and all of them, none of them passed any of the tests. And I was like, okay, Lord, if he's supposed to be with his biological family, I want that to, to happen. So I'm I'm okay with you doing that, but I love this boy, and I want to keep him. You know, and three years of just... <sighs> I, the court was just, it was just terrible. It was just terrible. Three years of all of that. But if it hadn't been for my wife listening to God, and if it hadn't been for that moment where God had me hold this little baby boy, I mean, he was just a baby when I was holding him, and his hair was all crazy and looking at him. If it hadn't been for that moment where our hearts melted and bonded, I think the three years would have been much more difficult. But God prepared me for this moment, prepared me, for the battle that adoption would be. It's not, by the way, don't let that scare you away if you're ever thinking about adoption. I hear up in Sacramento, it's a lot easier. So (laughs) don't let that scare you away. But God had been preparing my heart for what this would look like. And I feel like God does this at times. And maybe you've experienced this too, where God has prepared you for something and you're not entirely sure what it was until you've gone through it. And you look back and go, oh, that was God's providence. That was God's grace to prepare me for the difficulty that I was about to go through. And it's that scenario that we're gonna look at today in the book of Mark. So do you want to flip with me right now um, to Mark chapter nine. As you're flipping to Mark chapter nine, we'll be in verse two. Um, last week kind of ended on a bit of a somber tone. Peter and Peter was with Jesus, and Jesus said, who do people say I am? And he said, well, I think you're the Messiah. Or some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're all these different people. But I say you're the Messiah. And he's like, yes, you're right. I'm going to go die now. And it ended on a somber. It was like, what? They, they, you know, Jesus said, I've got to go raise from the dead and all this stuff. But it was this confession. And all of a sudden, Jesus let them in on the fact that difficult days are ahead. So now, all of a sudden, right after this moment, and by the way, in something called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who probably all use the same source material, it goes from Peter's confession to something called the Mount of Transfiguration in every, all three of those Gospels. This story is on purpose. James and John with him and led him up to a high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened." Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone about what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. So what is going on here? I mean, they go up to a high mountain. Jesus' face and his body, his clothes, all turn this dazzling white in front of them. Elijah and Moses show up, a voice from the cloud, holy cow, what is happening here? I mean, it's this mountaintop experience with Jesus, right? Jesus now, for the second time, has told them he's got to go and die. But one of the things that he's doing before he goes to die is he's buttressing up their faith. He's shoring it up by giving them this divine disclosure helping them to see who He really is, that He really is the Messiah that they were talking about, that He really is God Almighty in the flesh standing before them. He's helping them to see that. So I want to break this down a little bit with you uh, so that you understand the deeper part, but then what I want to do is I want to kind of like understand this verse technically and then I want you to understand this verse emotionally, Technically, in what's happening here, because I believe it plays such a huge role in the biblical narrative, and it helps us to have deeper faith in who God is and all that stuff, but emotionally because I want you to see the heart of God in all of this, because I think it's deep and profound. So technically, what's happening here? If you know the story of Exodus, then you probably understand this story. Let me just give you these two verses again. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him up to the high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. So there's a lot of detail in there that I just want to break some of this stuff down for you. 1,500 years before Jesus was around, Moses lived. And Moses led a group of 2 million Israelites out of Egypt, called the Exodus, and led them into the prom- well, the promised land, but he actually led them into the desert where they sinned for 40 years and all that stuff. But in the desert, one of the key things that Moses did is he went up to a mountain to be with God, Mount Sinai, and there was a cloud that enveloped the whole mountain and he got the law, the Torah and he brought it down the mountain and gave it to the people of God. This is one of the key things that Moses does in the story of the Exodus. So in Jesus doing this, he's showing them there's a new Exodus coming. We've been talking about this since Genesis chapter I mean since Mark chapter 1 that there's a new Exodus coming, an Exodus from sin. And that he is a new and greater Moses, that leading his people out of a sinful way of life and into a life with God, into a brand new kingdom. So that's one of the things that Jesus is showing here. But the interesting thing too, um, so let's look at Exodus chapter 24, verse 16. Exodus 24, 16 says this, And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. This is a large mountain, like I told you before, where Moses gets the law. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called Moses from within the cloud. Okay. The verse we read in Mark says, after six days, right? And then this verse says, after six days. So like clearly Jesus is linking his story with Moses' story. Goes up to a mountain. Jesus goes up to a mountain. A cloud enveloped the mountain, a cloud envelops the mountain here as well. And the Lord called from the cloud, the Lord called from the cloud to Jesus. This is literally reliving what Moses lived. And I don't expect you all to remember my sermons at all. I don't expect that. But week one of our series on in Christmas, uh, we talked about what the cosmic mountain means in the Bible. The cosmic mountain is the place where heaven and earth meet. In different places throughout the Bible, Eden is called a mountain, Mount Eden. And it's from in Ezekiel, Joel, Revelation is called this mountain. And so it's another place where heaven and earth are united. But in Eden, sin happens, heaven and earth are split apart and they're they're torn apart. See, in, in, in this experience, this mountaintop experience that Jesus is giving his disciples, he's showing them he's showing that in in Jesus, he's going to bring heaven and earth back together again. That's what he's showing them. There's all sorts of other mountains. Mount Moriah, where the sacrifice of Isaac was supposed to happen, but that God brought a substitute. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, burning bush, uh, giving uh, the covenant to Moses. Um, God led Elijah there. there. There's all sorts of things. Mount Mount Hor, Aaron dies. Mount Gerizim and Elab, blessing and curses are recited there. Mount Nebo, Moses goes up to overlook the promised land and dies there. Mount Zion, Jerusalem is built there, the chosen city of God and the foreshadowing of the church. A bunch of things happens, happen on mountaintops in biblical times. Why? Because of this whole idea of restoring Eden. That's it. It's this entire idea that God is going to restore heaven and earth together. And this story is eventually leading to another mountaintop called Golgotha, where Jesus will take his cross and he'll go up onto this high mountaintop and he will bear the cross for the sins of the world and heaven and earth will be reunited again by the forgiveness of our sin. That's why mountaintops are important. It's not just the the whole Eden connection, but it's the fact that we could be reunited with God again. That our lives can be united with heaven. Right here, right now. That we don't have to die to experience that. That when you say yes to Jesus, that you could begin living in relationship with the living God right now and be united with him. And then it says this, that Jesus transfigured before them. Like, what on earth does this even mean, right? If any of you have ever read this verse, you probably have been left perplexed by, like, the fact that Jesus' face apparently changed and his body changed. He transformed before them. The word here that's used is metamorpho. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. It's where we get the word mighty morph power rangers. That was for you, Sal Ortiz. That was just for you, buddy. Okay. This where we get this term to, to change before people. And Jesus was shown as, like, brighter than anything. I, I love the phrase, brighter than any ble- anyone could bleach something. That's what it said in the book of Mark. It's almost, like, childish to write that, right? It's, like, brighter than any bleach that we could do. I, I don't know. It was just really interesting. But look at this psalm, Psalm 102 verse, 104, verse 2. The Lord wraps himself... In light as with a garment, he stretches out the heavens like a tent. All through the Bible, Ezekiel 1, uh, uh, Isaiah 6, the book of Revelation, everywhere where you see God's throne room, everywhere, God is full of light. Because he is light. He says, let there be light in the beginning, because that's probably... that's God saying, let there be light, that is God revealing himself to humanity, and there's a light shining before the sun, even in creation. And all of a sudden, they're standing before Jesus, and all of a sudden, they get to see his radiance, his face, he's like glowing. It's incredible. It's actually, this Greek word metamorpho, the other two places that it's used, there's only two other places that it's used in the New Testament, and that's in Paul's writing. And he says things like, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be metamorpho, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Go through the same transformation process that Jesus went through. So just, and we know this is an Exodus story. So again, I'm boring you with the details, but we're going to just keep going with a couple more details here before we get to the heart of it. Exodus 34, 29 when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. So when Moses went to go speak with God, he came back and his face was glowing, right? And, and people actually could not look at him. They said they couldn't gaze on Moses because it was, he was too radiant. So Moses literally had to veil his face so that other people wouldn't get a glimpse of his radiance. The idea is that he was with God, that God's holiness somehow came upon Moses in such a way that he, like, glowed. I know it seems like a crazy story, right? But then you get to this transfiguration, and you see that after the sixth day, Jesus goes on to a mountain. And he does all the same things that Moses did. In fact, he's a new and greater Moses because he didn't cause someone else to gloat. He, he glowed glo- how, tra- how do you do that one? I need an English teacher. Um, <laughs> he glowed too. And then Elijah and Moses show up, which again, my wife said to me, she was like, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? Or maybe that wasn't my wife. Maybe that was, was that you, Elle? Somebody asked me that. How did they know it was Elijah and Moses? I don't know. You know, they didn't have Facebook back then. There's like, you couldn't like scan somebody like, what do they look like? I, maybe there was just something distinct. Elijah wore this distinct camel hair clothing, so maybe it was him. And Moses had the, the tattoos, right? No, the tablets, he said. Um, Moses, yeah, maybe Moses had the, the tablets. That's right. You never know. They could have had something real distinct or a staff. He threw it down. It was a snake. Who knows? We have no idea. We don't know how they know it was them, but we just know that the law and the prophets are all there watching this moment happen. The Bible says that Elijah didn't die, he was just taken to heaven. And we know that Moses did die, but he was taken to Mount Nebo, he died and was buried by God. So there's these two men with mysterious disappearances in the Bible, and they're symbols of the law and the prophets all coming to see Jesus. There's this great, great scriptural commentator from the third century AD. His name is St. Ephraim the Syrian, and this is what he said about the transfiguration. And I just love this quote. It's up on the screen for you, I think. At the transfiguration, at the transfiguration, the prophets rejoiced because they had seen Christ's humility, which they had not known. And the apostles rejoiced because they had seen the glory of His divinity, which they had not known. So, I guess it wasn't up on the screen. That's okay. That's my fault. It's been a rough week. (laughs) So, what this commentator was saying from the third century is that we saw Jesus, they saw the Messiah in His humanity, and, and the prophets could have never figured out that God would become man. They would have never imagined this. It's incredible. And then the apostles standing right there saw that this Messiah who was a man was actually God, that he was both fully man and fully God. And they could have never imagined that. And it blew their minds. So then Peter says, and and many times people give Peter a lot of grief for this statement. And I'm going to read it and I'm going to redeem Peter for a second. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Well, I think you would be frightened too. And some people think that Peter was probably just being foolish, but in Jewish eschatology, which is in the Jewish mind, the last days, the greatest hope in Jewish eschatology was that the Messiah would tabernacle with his people would dwell with his people. A tabernacle is like a tent. And there's a feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of you want to go much deeper on this, go do a bunch of study on John chapter 7. It'll absolutely blow your mind. But Jesus was at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, and where he declared, if anybody comes to me, streams of living water will flow from them. That's out of John chapter 7 in the middle of the Feast of the Tabernacles, where they're expecting the Messiah to come. It's incredible. So, Peter is just spilling out this messianic hope that, that the Messiah can come and dwell and, and tabernacle with us because he's taking this literally. But he, little did he know in John chapter 1, when John, who was at this mountain, would write his gospel, he would say that Jesus became, that, that, that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us and that he dwelt among us. That's John 1.14. The word there is tabernacled, and the word dwelt. That he dwelt among us. I love that explanation. So Peter's not being foolish at all. Peter just has this hope of the Messiah, that, that Jesus actually is God, and he sees it now. And like I said, there's this cloud And this cloud, a voice from the cloud comes. And if you remember back to the book of Exodus, we already read the scriptures, but God's glory comes in a cloud and rests on the mountain. And if you remember the book of Exodus, the cloud, wherever that cloud went, the people had to follow, right? That was the whole story of the Exodus. They're following the cloud. And there's this voice that comes from the cloud that deafens all other voices. And the voice is, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And I want to kind of pause here for a second and, and look at this disclosure a little bit in a deeper way, because maybe you hear this morning and you're thinking, there's so much to the book of Mark, why are we stopping and, and, and talking about this for, for 30, 35 minutes? It, it, it's almost like in Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, God says, this is my son whom I love, and I'm well pleased. It, it, it's almost like this is like, yes, it's confirming the identity to Jesus, So that Jesus has this confidence in his father, he could go heal people, he can go cast out demons, he could go walk on water, he can go do all these important things, he could confront Pharisees and Sadducees, he could go into the the areas that are non-Jewish areas and he could confront them with the gospel and amazing things could happen. So at his baptism, Jesus heard this same voice saying nearly the same thing. But now this voice isn't just for Jesus, it's for the disciples, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And you've got to remember that Moses and Elijah are still there, but Jesus is distinct among them. He's God's son. God isn't talking about Moses and Elijah here. He's talking about Jesus. It isn't just about the sonship of Jesus, which is massively important. But what it's about is that relationship between God and Jesus is built on one thing and one thing only. And this matters so deeply to us, and we lose sight of it every now and then. It's based on love. That the basis of every conversation between the Father and the Son has to do with love. It's a reminder Jesus, you're gonna go to the cross, I love you. Jesus, you're gonna do hard things, I love you. It gives Jesus the ability to walk through those hard things. This gives the disciples. The ability to walk through the crucifixion and walk up into whatever's happening in their life, their difficulties, their scenarios, because they know that there's a God in heaven who loves Jesus and Jesus loves us. They know that. It's the foundation of our relationship with God. And I think Jesus wanted his disciples to see, hear, experience that one moment where God spoke from the cloud. That out of the love of the Father, Jesus loves us. Our relationship with God is not based on merit. It's not based on what you've done. You can't please God. It's not based on, on your goodness and your own righteousness. Paul calls those things in the Greek skubalon. I'll let you go look that up. It's not based on any of that. It's based on what Jesus did on the cross. And he loves us. That's what our relationship with God is built on. We go through unhealthy times in our own life, in our own marriages, in our own relationships with others, in our own friendships, in our own work relationships, and we base other th- all of our other relationships on like this, sometimes it's a quid pro quo relationship, you do for me, I do for you. Sometimes it's a relationship um, based on a selfishness, like I need this person, so I'm going to just take and suck whatever I can out of them. You know what I mean? Sometimes his relationship is based on, on just terrible ideas, like terrible things. But God bases his relationship with his son and with humanity on love. Often relationships break because of selfishness. Often relationships start out of love or what we think is love. Sometimes they start out of Lust. And they never hit that area of love, and they fizzle. But because Jesus is settled in his Father's love, he can base his relationship with all humanity on love. And this is such a crucial point. Because I feel like you can go to church for years and slowly base your relationship with Jesus on merit, I feel like you can go to church for years and slowly base your relationship with Jesus on your friends at church. I feel like you can go to church for years and slowly base your relationship with Jesus on your status. I tithe every week. I attend church. I'm a part of a life group. I serve at church. God owes me. No. I mean, if you do all that stuff, awesome. Tithing's an act of worship. Do it. That's between you and the Lord. Do it. Attending church is important. Uh, we know that people who have stopped attending church from COVID, who were strong, regular church attenders who stopped during COVID and never came back, we know that they're fizzling out in their faith and they're having a difficult time coming back into following Jesus. So attend church. Part of life group, that's great. Growing in life group is important. Being in relationship with others, that's all huge. Serving in the church, that's all massive. That's all important. But if it's all not based on the love of God, then you're doing it out of merit. And you do it out of the fact that Jesus loves you, that he is loved by the Father, and out of that love from the Father, he loves us. I think this is a core declaration for the church. This is my son. I love him. It's literally the whole thing. I've seen where people lately have deconstructed their faith and begun following secular humanism or whatever it is they're following, just being a good person or whatever it might be. They left Jesus, they left following Jesus because they've been hurt by the church. And and let's get this straight right now. I've been hurt by the church. When I was a kid, we went to a church where there was a pastor who had an adulterous relationship and we stopped going to church. I had a bad taste in my mouth in the church for years, and, and I could tell that story another time. But everybody's going to be hurt by the church eventually. We're all just a bunch of sinners here, redeemed by... By, by God. That's, that's it. We're redeemed by God. Every now and then, even though that we are uh, trying to live in that love relationship with Jesus, every now and then that flesh side comes out of us and we hurt other people. So that's just going to happen. And um, I wish it didn't. And I don't mean to lessen anything like the, the, the Catholic sexual abuse scandals and all So Those are all horrific and horrible things. So I'm not trying to lessen any of those things but those are signs that people have walked away from the love relationship of God and walked into the selfish relationship of God using God as an object or a tool to get to manipulate other people. God in his very nature is love and bases the trinity on love and wants to invite us in to that love relationship. It all has to do with love. It's the basis of everything. In Revelation 2, John, who's present here, would write to the church, Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, stop doing all these good things that you're doing and return to your first love. This moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is an amazing time where Jesus will prepare his disciples to endure all that they are going to endure because the relationship is based on love. It's almost like that time where I picked up Jacob and I saw him and I was like, I love you. You're my son now. Even though he wasn't my son yet, I hadn't signed any pieces of paper, I just knew in my heart he was my son. And, and I, said, I had to set him back down and I actually had to, when I left him that day, it was hard for me. I had met him for two minutes and it was, I was like, my heart ached when I left him. I just, God built this supernatural love and he just gave it to me that day. It was his special act of grace that helped me go through those three years of LA County Court purgatory slash hell, whatever it might have been. It was terrible. And then John, again, who was there? And this should be on the screen, John 17, 25 through 26. He's recording Jesus' prayer for us and he says this, Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them, that I myself may be in them. Let me read that last line. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me might be in them and that I myself might be in them. This is Jesus' deepest prayer for you, that you get to experience, just as the Father called down from the heavens, this is my Son whom I love, that you get to experience the love of Jesus in powerful and profound ways. This is the prayer of the Son of God for you, That you get to experience God's love in more practical and profound ways than you've ever experienced it before. And that you would base everything on the love of Jesus. This is God's prayer for you. That you would experience Jesus' love in all of your relationships, your work relationships, your home relationships, your marriage, everything. Because it literally, you could base everything on this. And it's also about spurring you on in your faith. It's about helping you grow and find and follow Jesus. But it's primarily about living in a relationship of love with your creator. That's what this is about. I think that's what was happening on this mountain. And if you could grasp what was happening on this mountain, then you could literally do anything. Because you know that the love of the Messiah is in you. The very last that he says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Moses would say this in Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord would, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. There's no question now that Jesus is this new and greater Moses leading this amazing new exodus away from sin, away from the world and into the love of God. There's no question now about that. But somehow the way forward is through listening to Jesus. How do we do that in a world that's so tuned in to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, chat, ChatGPT, whatever it might be? How do we do that in a world that's so tuned in to the 24-hour news cycle? How do we do that in a world where there's a trillion voices competing for your attention? It's simple. It's not profound. It's the simplest thing in the world. You have the Word of God. This is the word of God revealed to you. I always tell people, I tell young ministry students this all the time, your task is to read this and digest it and to ponder it every day over and over and over again just until you die. And when you're done with it, just start reading it again because there's a lot to forget in here. So just keep reading it every day until you die, and that's, that, that's how you're going to learn to hear the voice of God, because God has given it to you right here. There's other ways that we talk about those in deeper service, services. I believe the Holy Spirit still speaks today. We will a lot more about hearing from God. But how do we primarily listen to God? He's given us His words. And you come to church, and, and every week, and, and it's my hope that I spur you on to a, a greater and more robust week of Bible study in your own life, and your own devotions, and that you seek God at home. That's so important. Because if you're living on this on, on a Sunday to hear God's Word, you're living on one meal a week. That leaves you hungry. So I want to encourage you Jesus Jesus was told by His Father, this is my Son, whom I love. And it's clear now that He's speaking to the disciples, and not Jesus. Listen to Him. That's from God to us, the disciples. Listen to Him. And the best way to listen is through His Word. Just as I feel that the Lord gave Desiree and I a special insight about our own adoption journey so that we could face the trials, Jesus gave a few disciples a deeper insight into a closer revelation of who he was so that they could endure, so that they could have confidence that they are loved by God, so that they can continue to build deep community with others of love. Just as God is preparing uh, Peter, James, and John to walk through the next door, He's preparing you to walk through whatever next door it is for you too. Whatever challenge and trial you have coming up, whatever you're facing, God has been preparing you for it. And what I want to tell you is that you need to do that in a posture of knowing that you are loved deeply by your creator. You don't need to earn it. In the same way that he lavishes love on his son, he lavishes it on you. So listen to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this disclosure moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. God, we thank you for this moment that that the disciples got to see your, your face shining, radiant. And we got to hear this voice that you love us. God, we know that you love us. There's some people here today who might need to repent because in the relationships, Maybe we've built relationships on everything but love. We've built relationships on manipulation. We've built relationships on whatever it might be. God, maybe there's some people here who've even tried to build a relationship with you through manipulation. God, I'll do this if you do that. But Lord, we know the reality and the truth that you love us. So Lord, we repent from all other kinds of trying to forge through relationships without love. And we ask you, to just pour out your love onto your people. Help us to know that we are loved by you. And we know that through the stories of the cross and the pouring out of your spirit, but sometimes we need that extra understanding of how deeply we are loved. And we ask you to pour that out onto your people. Help us to listen to you, Lord, to read your word, to get it into us deeply. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. amen. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast with Pastor Dave Johnson. If you are hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, we want to thank you. We hope you enjoyed this new episode. And if you did, please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information on the ministries at REC, check out our social media pages. The links are always in the description.